You're listening to the Builderpedia podcast, the only podcast that takes you on the whole property journey from planning, design, building, selling, and everything in between. Along the way, we'll introduce you to our network of friends and colleagues who are experts in their field. Now, here are your hosts, Matt and Jeannie from Ballast Point. Welcome to another episode of Builderpedia. I'm Matt, your host. Jeannie, our co-host, is having a break to focus on her work. So it's just me for today. And I'd like to introduce a very special guest, Kian Brennan, who is the CEO of Quantum Contract Solutions. He's over in Perth and he's going to help us pick through contract negotiation, contract law, and give us some insider tips on, on contracts. So welcome, Kian. Thanks for coming. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Nice to be on the on your podcast. Yeah, so I'm doing well, by the way. Thanks for asking. Okay, so before we dive in, like what we normally do is talk about what's inspired us in the last week. And so, Kian, maybe you want to start what what's inspired you or who's inspired you? Or tell us a yarn. Yeah, sure. So at the size the business is now, we're we're scaling quite massively. And we're in Australia, we're in New Zealand, we're in the States. It's all kind of going a, bit, a little bit bonkers, which is, which is fantastic, but problems nonetheless. And I've got a business coach called Dr. Trevor Cashy, and it's he is my inspiration this week. So he introduced me to a kind of a concept around leadership that I wasn't particularly, you know, it's just it made it quite simple for me and it clicked with me and made things a little bit better. And he was asking me about my leadership style and I would say it was quite authoritarian. I'm very good at systems, I'm very good at processes and I want people to be good at systems and processes and I said almost military-like. And then he goes, aha, okay, very interesting. And he goes, well, something to know about the military is – and he gave me this analogy. The military actually gets funded completely by the government. So they don't, they don't earn any money, right? So there's no earning of money there, okay? Second thing is people in the military can't necessarily leave, okay? And so they don't have the ability to jump ship and move around. And he goes, no, it's not, obviously not the same. But when you're talking about training dogs and training cats, he goes, did you know you can train cats? And I was like, no, I didn't. And he go, I go, yes, you can train cats. I was like, okay. Now, when you train a dog, because a dog has nowhere else to go, you can train a dog with a newspaper, with a stick, basically, the stick or honey, right? And you can train a dog with stick and honey, right? So you reward them with a treat and you, there may be a newspaper across the head if they've pooed or you hear some people, you know, sticking the dog's head in, in their pee if they peed in the house, like all of these sort of stuff, right? And so... I was genuinely under the impression that it was stick and honey was the best way to lead people and to get people to kind of do what you want, essentially, from a leadership perspective, get, you know, get them to, to follow, let's say. And so he said, well, cats, cats have options because if cats don't like you anymore, they will leave. They will go find another family straight away. And so to train a cat is you actually can only train a cat with honey, with treats, rewarding positive actions and so in an organization it's more like training cats than it is training dogs 
and to be clear, it's we're not talking about training people, dogs or cats. It's just <laughs> it's just an analogy, right? I know because I know, but one thing I know about cats and dogs is that dogs have masters and cats have slaves, right? <laughs> it's so cats, cats, have, cats are the masters, really. That is more likely because in a leadership position, you're more of a servant to the organization. And that actually probably does make sense. And it is the organization that you have, people can leave. And to make people want to stay and be happy, it's about more about the honey, more about rewarding positive behaviors to drive uh, good business outcomes. So that was a, a learning for me. And that was a bit of an inspiration and a bit of a change of mindset for me moving forward. I get that. And some of the most influential and successful businesses like Google take that approach where really if you're a manager you're there to facilitate and help everyone like that's your role like some businesses really flip it on its head and of course all businesses you know when have all sorts of people so not everyone behaves that way but that's the intent that's the model they're creating where it's a, it's a your line managers there to support you first and foremost and then measure your performance. But I think it's bang on. And I think those two things re- rewarding, but, but also measuring performance is, is a phenomenal tool, but it's hard. It's hard. That's the hard bit. Mm. It's easy to reward people as hard to just start measuring. Well, I think there's kind of three different parts to it. And as we've scaled, we've reiterated and reiterated to the point now where we're, we're super clear at the front end of what the expectations are. And so we will literally write into people's contract, here is the problem you're solving in the business. It's not a job description. Here's the problem we need you to solve. Here are the responsibilities you need to. And then we'll have a section that this is what good looks like. Good looks like even it's like responding to messages on Slack quickly. Being like uh, all of the little things that you want from this person, being proactive, all, not generic stuff, specific stuff. And then so that, that will be the expectations. And then we have training to make sure that they're actually able to do that. If they, if you haven't trained them to be able to do the thing, well, then it's, it's probably the business's fault. But if you have trained them, then we have the measurement. So how far away from good are you? Where do we need to work on that part? And then obviously the motivation part is the rewarding part. So that's kind of the whole trifecta we like to look at. I love it. I think mean, one thing I've learned is that so many people tell you so many different things, but I think from every one of those, you pick up something. That's the key. And so I've been listening to an audiobook. I mean, I, I download hundreds of audiobooks. My audio bill, you know, Amazon makes a lot of money out of me for, on, every year because I download a lot of books. A lot of them I just don't finish because they don't really instead they don't inspire me. But I've got an absolute cracker, and it's called How Big Things Get Done lessons from the world's top project manager and for 30 years almost i've been either learning about project management project managing things or trying to improve my skills as a project manager and this was a new way of thinking about projects and project management in the sense of really going from a perspective of why projects tend to fail why they tend to go over budget and brought me back to things that I've kind of thought were the case but didn't really have any evidence for. Like there is uncertainty in every project. What? How do we describe that level of uncertainty? And I think, you know, it's been a long time since I studied project management formally, but I, I thought it was fantastic. He's a 
Danish. So Bent Flyberg is the author, co-authored by Dan Gardner. It was very well written. It was story-based. It had everything from the Sydney Opera House and its thousand percent plus blowout in costs to one of the best projects, which is the Guggenheim by Frank Gehry, which was the opposite of that, and yet both ambitious, ridiculous buildings that were game changers for the places they were built. So I couldn't recommend it highly enough. If you're about to start a project or you're in project management, it's a very good book. I really enjoyed like every bit of it. It was just so well-crafted and some brilliant advice and just different tools to reframe projects for your clients. Like just that idea of a of uncertainty in every project and looking at what things have cost in the past rather than what the theoretical cost is. That That's something that I've always known but didn't have language or, or tools or references to describe. We all know that some projects blow out for no reason and you, you're scratching your, your head and most often I've blamed under budgeting, like poor budgeting, and a lot of time that, that is the case. But as the author points out, every project has a combination of things that go right or wrong and there is just going to be a project where a combination of things go wrong and no one's done anything wrong, no one's mismanaged. There's just a spread of results and you're going to end up somewhere and um, hopefully around the mean rather than in the tail. But um, it's just helped. Yeah, it's helped immensely. I, I, I really love it. It's a great book. And so like if we can safely say that most projects run over budget and over time, then we can lead on to my area, which potentially is well, what does the contract say happens when these things happen? So if statistically the majority of time they're going to go over budget and statistically the majority of time they're going to go over time, well, then statistically the contract is going to come into play one way or the other. So when most people are looking at projects and getting projects done, there's a lot of considerations to be had, right? There is, okay, well, I want the project done, right? Is that the most important thing? Okay, if that's the most important thing, that's fine. Maybe you can throw money at the situation. Or is the most important thing I need it to be done and on budget? Maybe I actually don't have any more money to spend on this. It's a different outcome. So what problem are we trying to solve is the thing, right? If you have lots of money and you just want to get, like oil and gas companies, mining companies, their profit margins are so immensely huge that they control money at the situation, right? So let's just say they got a project. We see in the newspapers going over budget, millions of dollars over budget. They don't really, it's not that they don't care. I'm sure it's not a nice discussion internally, but they can still throw money at the issue to get it done, right? Okay, fine. You need more money or we need more people or whatever it is. Let's just throw money at it. Okay. So contract, obviously, you know, that's at a high level. But if you're the type of person, if you've got a, you're building a house and you probably realistically have a deposit of some kind and you have a loan of some kind. You don't necessarily have access to a lot more cash. Probably not, right? 
and so if you're not in construction, maybe you don't know this, right? And this is your first construction project, right? That you are you are the principal of this project, whether you like it or not, right? This is your project that you're putting money behind and you're going to engage someone to do it for you. So you are the principal is what we would call it in contractual terms. You're the you're the top dog, essentially. And so you've probably never done this before. But from a goal perspective, if you know that more than likely it's going to go over budget because it will go over budget more than likely, if you know more than likely it's going to go over time, then you have to ask yourself, well, what happens when those things happen? Am I going to be screwed or am I going to be okay? That's it. That's really what we're talking about today. And one of my greatest discoveries, and I wish like whenever you discover something in business, you always wish that you discovered it 20 years ago or at least 10 years ago. But one of the things that changed and made the business more successful but made the experience better for everyone, I think, is when walking into a meeting with a new potential client, whether we were building or whether we were designing, same principle. And rather than saying, what are we building? I said, what are your objectives here? What is it that you want to achieve? And how do we know if we've succeeded or not? when we finished the job. So I think it probably resulted in being more successful in winning work just by like actually taking an interest in people. I Well, I hope that's the case. But it just changed the dynamic of the project. And that's something that I'm, I push up onto all my staff that the objectives are actually maintained because what happens throughout the project is those objectives tend to be forgotten or from those objectives may have been laid down pre-design or in the early stages of design. And so we make sure that we try and put them into the drawing package one way or another. And those objectives are still there when we're on site. And if one of those objectives is a drop-dead budget, we actually put that as an objective on the front cover of a set of drawings. That's kind of my little innovation or or one way because yeah we did know we objectives do get forgotten and you focus on what you're building or what you're creating or the contract i do love that matt there's a problem that we had in our business that i'm hoping you can take and implement into your business right and so when you're marketing and selling the questions you're asking are fantastic why are you doing this right and what are your objectives and so because what we do as a company is we will help you sign a contract that has essentially, on average, if you do what we say and you do it the way we want you to do it, on average, an 80% less risky contract, 80%, right? That's our average. And then in the post-award phase, if you're managing it, you'll save on average 100 grand, depending on, on the size of company you are, of course. But one of the things is our success actually looks like silence. Because if you sign a contract that has less risk or sets you up for success, there's no outcome. The thing didn't happen that you were scared of, of happening. It didn't happen, right? And so that's great. You don't necessarily feel that. If I was the type of company that brought in two projects for you, you would feel that, right? And you'd be like, oh, that's fantastic, okay? But so what we've had to develop, and I think this would be amazing for a company that, that is doing design and build as well, is that we've had to continually resell our clients when they were on our books to say okay well when because they forget what their problems were right so someone who comes in and didn't have time to review contracts and now we're doing it for him his problem has shifted 
So three months into it, the, the arrangement, we'll say, okay, so when you first came in, you said your problem was you didn't have time to do it. You're signing risky contracts. We've managed to negotiate. So here's the results here and here and here. And we will continue to remind them, here were your problems, here were your results. Because people forget. And so they get the new problems emerge. And so if you're like, okay, you said to us that cost was your main issue. And now we've tried to reduce cost here because you say cost was our main issue. Is that no longer the case? Are we changing that objective or not? Essentially. Yeah, so I, I agree with that. And I guess what we do is we test those objectives over time. And we challenge clients, if clients have a problem with something that happening or that we've done you know for example they don't like where we've put a bedroom i don't know like maybe that's that's a a very um generic example but let's say they don't like something we tend to say okay like is your criticism or your suggestion does that align with your original objectives like are we meeting your objectives bring it back to the objective or is it that maybe we need to shift the objectives <laughs> because yeah, for sure. if we test it against your objectives and you still don't like it, whatever it is, whichever way, whether it's budget-wise or whether it's a more tangible something on the drawing, if it's compliant with your objectives, then maybe your objectives need assessment. So we do go through a process of uh, at critical stages to kind of go, well, here's the objectives we have in place. And I guess the clients see those and that's how we – ultimately measure the success of the project. I would suggest that your clients in a lot of situations are asking for the Ritz-Carlton and wanting to pay for the Holiday Inn, basically. Um, We have all sorts of clients. I think we give them a good grounding from the outset. I think one thing I've learned is that there's a lot more to be gained from just saying how it is. And I think if they're asking for the Ritz-Carlton they don't have the budget for it. Just say it. The temptation is there to just go, all right, well, we don't want to upset the client. We don't want to lose the client, so we'll roll with it. But I'm just brutal and I'm just going, you know, <laughs> I had a story that a client told me who had a Dutch architect. The client lived in Holland and they had a Dutch architect. And whenever they raised something with that was additional and, and the architect said in a very, like, stern, very Dutch way, you can't afford it. And that was, <laughs> that was just brutal. And so I kind of, I don't say that particularly, but I have that in the back of my head. I say it more politely, you're not in a Dutch way, not in an upfront, brutal way, but in my own way. Sometimes work with Shell for a significant amount of people and dealt with many Dutch people. I do enjoy the absolute frankness of speaking to a Dutch person um, and getting that level of honesty. It just makes things a little bit easier. Yeah. I do, look, I try and uh, – it, it's tough though. It's tough to tell when a client's asking you for something that you think is marginal at best and you want to give them what they need. You, you want to give them what they're asking for. So it's not, it's not always simple. It's not always – you know, I, it's not always easy to say – you can't afford it. Like that's not an easy thing to say. Or like, so people are human, and you know. And sometimes you say that anyway, and they keep rolling as if they haven't heard you. And um, <laughs> I don't know what it is. But um, let's bring it back to because we we skipped over the f- sort of introducing key and your background, and because you you're you're in Perth, but your accent's definitely not from a suburb of Perth that I would know of and so how how did you end up in Perth 
So I'm originally from the west of Ireland, a place called Galway, and eventually everyone kind of makes their way up to Dublin over time, you know, from the country up to the big city. And um, really, I really enjoy adventure. I enjoy good weather. I'm a pretty active person. And I wanted to go to Australia. I went I went on a bit of an adventure to Thailand um, spent a bit of time there. But I ultimately got a job directly at a university in Western Australia working on an oil and gas project. I was just really, really interested. And so I told them I wouldn't start for nine months. I was going to go traveling on the way there. And during that time, we'll submit the visa and it'll, you know, hopefully it'll be approved by the time it comes through. And then that was the process and got to Australia. Absolutely loved it. Went back to the Middle East then for a bit of a sabbatical, spent about uh, four and a bit years in the Middle East and came back to Australia again. And so really just for me, it's about, um, I love construction. My passion is construction. Probably my other passion is, is businesses and construction businesses as, as well. And so Australia is a great place to live. The, uh, you know, I cycle, I race bikes. Um, Perth is great for that. Uh, the weather is great. I mean, people complain here of a tepid winter, which is, you know, slightly uncomfortable you know what i mean it, it's not even you know in comparison although i've gotten very soft i have to admit i've got very soft since i've left ireland uh, so you know i'm complaining about a, an 11 12 degree morning as opposed to a freezing morning so yeah that's how i eventually made my way to australia and who knows so the business is, is pretty taken off in the u.s so there might be a move over there for a little while who knows i'm open to more of an adventure so tell us about um quantum Contract solutions. How did you, where did that come from? Like, how did you, where did the seed of that come from? And what is it? And what, what do you do? So, my background is working for the principals and larger construction companies. So, essentially, not subcontractors who are essentially predominantly almost all my clients now. And what I was able to see working with these larger organizations was subcontractors losing money left, right, and center, or smaller construction companies, not always subcontractors, and losing money going out of business over and over and over and over again. And it was because they didn't understand that there was a game of contracts being played that they essentially weren't playing. And so what they didn't realize was the largest and most successful construction companies in the world you know, so you, you can become a billion dollar company just doing roofing, just doing civil, just doing whatever, right? You, like you can become a huge company just being a subcontractor. And there are huge companies that are there. And they all know that there's a game of contracts being played and how to play it. And actually, the being able to deliver your service to a high standard is just the price of admission. That is not the be all and out. That'll get you a seat at the table been able to negotiate better contracts, have a better systems in place for your contract management to ensure that you actually get the money in the bank from doing the good job is the other half of it. And that's where we work at. So what I've created almost five years ago now is a system that allows construction subcontractors to get access to the best systems and processes and people on a monthly retainer rather than having to implement those things into their business themselves, have to hire people internally at high day rates or high high costs so they can get access to like we like for example if we've done over 2700 contract reviews and contracts negotiations now 
no one person is going to have that data other than us. So you can go and hire someone internally to do that for you, or you could use us as a, as a business that essentially is probably half the price of that and also is going to get you a better outcome. So that is the kind of the overall idea of the business and it's working, which is the, the goal. And I was able to create the system because I knew how these big companies worked. I knew the yeah, insides yeah. of the big companies and how to get things in the door, how to get things approved. And then I guess that's the secret sauce. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I guess along that vein, you know, what are the secrets? Because because I think, you know, one of the things we always try and do on Buildopedia is try and reveal some of those inside secrets to our audience. Most of them, well, we don't, all, all three of them, um, but uh, we, you know, whoever they are, probably m- more so aspiring home builders or um, similar or about to embark on, on a build. So I guess what are your insights in um, if I'm a, I don't know, if I'm building, say, a $500,000 or putting in a $5,000 renovation, what do I look for in a contract? Like what are the key things? As an insider, what can you suggest? So I'm going to tailor advice differently than I would tailor to a larger subcontractor that we're normally dealing with. So I'm going to tailor advice to the individual person who is signing a contract, okay? Because there's different problems. A subcontractor will be giving a very hostile contract to sign. It's a whole different ball game. You've been giving a highly amended contract to sign, which pushes all the risk onto you. An individual builder may have that issue, but probably won't, okay? And so on a contract value of that size, it's playing out the probability of what could happen. If you are engaging in a project, you're going to have to get good at a few things pretty quickly. One is you're going to get some drawings and some documents that you need to get your head around pretty quickly. As an owner? Is that what you mean? or As, a- as an owner, okay? Yeah. And so you need to interpret. So the architect or engineer is going to is it going to put up documents together, and you're going to have to be able to interpret what's in them pretty quickly. Which my experience is that most people, and this is this is something I've learned over the years, most people don't have anywhere near the comprehension of drawings that someone who's been building for a long time does. Sure, they 100%. sort of see they may pick up where the door is and some dimensions, but really detailed drawings they don't really understand what's happening there and some people can't and it's all horses for courses some people who've never really worked with any sort of plans find it hard to even understand what the plan is is elevations and oh you know it's confusing what what elevation am i looking at here yeah it's difficult and particularly most people haven't right they're building a house for this is their first construction project so you need to be able to interpret them in some capacity the contract itself is just another document, so by a different professional, which is a lawyer, which you also need to interpret to a particular level. You don't have to be experts in any of these things. You just need to understand the key things. And so if we were to go back, what are we worried about happening? What is the risk in the contract? One is there's going to be changes. So if you've already got the scope of work and you're drawing, you're happy with how the house is going to look and you're not going to make any changes, a lot of your change issues are gone, right? A lot of your risk is now pushed onto the builder as well because you're like, I'm not changing anything. You give me a price to complete this job. It's all with you. So you've pushed a lot of risk onto them and that's risk that they're pricing in. They should be able to take on as experts. If you start making changes though, things will change. 
And so you need to understand, okay, am I going to make changes? Okay, if I am, I need to make sure that that variation clause, I understand it specifically, what I need to do. And then if you look into these the clauses itself, you need to work out, because I, I, I can't give you specific advice as to what's going to happen, but look at, like, can the builder just make a change willy-nilly himself and a billy for it, right? Potentially could, right? Or do you need to approve it in a specific way? If you need to approve it in a specific way, you need to follow that, right? So the changes and then the delays. What's going to happen if there's going to be a delay? What's going to happen if there's going to be a change? And then the final one I would look at is... How do you get out of the contract if it all goes belly up, right? If the builder is useless, it's all terrible, how do you get out of the contract? What does the termination clause say? Once you have those three things in place and you've taken in the buildability advice about like what am I, like, what am I doing in the first place, that is probably the three things you should look at, right? And it's it is really just understanding what the contract says. And, and I think we we're going to talk about what type of contracts we should be looking at. Yeah. And so in the world at the moment, most contracts are fully amended. When you say fully amended, what, is, what does that mean? So if I'm a construction company A, right, and I'm, go, I'm dealing with you, I will get a lawyer to draft up a contract specific to me. Okay. Yeah. And what that means is a lawyer has put all the, all the risks in my favor. Right, I'm going to send you that, and if you don't know what you're doing, you're probably going to sign it, but all the risks are now on you, essentially. That's essentially what happens. Or you can get what's called standard contracts, which are you know the Australian standards, there's standards in America, whatever. It doesn't really matter. But you can get a standard contract that is amended. So it's the same thing. They've just given you something that you know what it looks like. It's pretty standard, but they've amended it. And then the final one is just standard contracts produced by an organization that is reputable. And those ones are the fairest contracts. So they're the ones that you should look for in the home building scenario. Okay. Now, this is risk. This is the whole point of this is risk. Those ones are fair and the risk is apportioned reasonably fairly. So if you get a standard contract from an organization, you can be reasonably sure as long as it's not amended, it's reasonably fair. And to be honest, that's probably as good as you're going to get. Yeah, and I guess from my perspective as a builder, as a contractor, we're really we're very hesitant to accept any amendments to a standard contract. And I guess that comes from a couple of things. One is experience of where contracts have been amended. I won't say they failed. They just created confusion in the amended areas. For example, when there was... One client, um, this is years ago, this is um, before I started my own business, I was dealing with a client who wanted to draft a clause that offered incentives for cost reduction. And that was a, a particular type of contract where it was a reimbursement of cost, a cost, cost plus contract or an open book contract. I like open book because it sounds a bit nicer than cost plus. It's focused mm-hmm. on the openness, not the cost. But, yeah, so it was an open book. Contract and and in that case, you know, things had to be resolved, and the owner made changes. And I just wanted to sort of respond to something you said. I, in every contract I've ever um, been a party to, there's always changes. It's inevitable something will change, so you you need to um, allow for that, particularly when it's a home, because people stand in a space and go, "Oh, I didn't think." of that until I stood here and that's fine like that's totally acceptable and legitimate and of course you should change something 
before it's... my argument there is that's why am i paying for an architect right in that in that scenario that's why i would pay for an architect because i don't know that stuff and by paying for an architect the, the less of those things are going to happen oh absolutely absolutely without a doubt but you still people still inevitably even with the best architects in australia some of whom i've been lucky enough to work with and some really tight documentation sets people just decide they want something that they didn't think of before or they didn't know about before so they're engaged in that process that makes them look at houses in a different light so they're going to visit their friends and go oh that's an amazing feature that i'd love to have in my house that i didn't think of before because i wasn't focused on a house build before and it's inevitable i mean I don't know of any residential projects where there haven't been some changes and that's expected almost. And I guess, you know, where a builder and um, your client's agents like the architect or the engineer come in and, you know, engineers always change their mind about how much steel should go in and, and add steel to places that they didn't before and they just do that. That's what they, you know, on most projects that happens at some point and, in some cases, it's a couple of bars of steel to stitch something up. But then in other places, they just say, oh, well, sorry, I've changed my mind. I need more steel there. And, and that's there's not much you can do about it. So so there's things that move around in any project. But uh, yeah, depends on the contract. But we just, we are very careful not to take amendments in contracts. Like we stick to the standard. It's tested. It's workshopped. It's tested in law it's tested in court potentially it's held up and as you say it's depending on which side of it you fall you might think it's fair or unfair but it's the fairest one available i think some people argue that maybe an open book or a cost plus contract is stacked in the builder's favor but as i've had the experience recently where a client proposed taking out a clause that he thought was unfair and i you know i was like oh I'm hesitant to change anything, but I ran it by our solicitor and he said, well, taking that clause out means that you're neither a cost plus contract nor a fixed price contract. You're somewhere in between. So we pushed back and said, look, I'm sorry, but we can't vet advice that that is not in anyone's interest to take the contract there. So we're... we're I, don't, yeah. I agree with you. Amending a standard contract is probably not worthwhile. Because they're they're pretty standard, they're, they are fair, and they've gone through bodies and bodies of evidence and time and tested. And just I just want to be to be real. I hope you you'll appreciate that that contracts that have been amended in reality from a builder perspective going to a client will over the long term be better for the company. In my view. Well, it's uh, well. Actually, it's probably more more proven than anything. So every major builder will have their own contracts because they are pushing risk down. And over time, risk will like you know risk is there. It's silent, but risk exists, and it will over time crop up. And if you are lowering your risk as a as a builder, then you are without a doubt improving your long term prospects. And that's why all the builders are doing it. But in saying that, it is a game, and so you can push back on various different things, but that is true. With the cost plus versus the fixed price, again, and if I'm talking to your, your listeners who are you know, individual 
investors, I guess, or home buyers. It's again, you need to establish what your risk is. If you have gotten yourself into a situation, which which I would like you to get into, where you know exactly what you want, it's fully designed, that is it, right? You know there's going to be minimal changes. You've made your mind up. Then fixed price, lump sum is the way to go for you. Because you've decided, I know what I want, and I'm not going to change my mind, and I'm going to put the risk onto the builder to, for the builder to produce it. And if he doesn't do it, it's he's the expert. He's going to tell you how long it's going to take. He's going to tell you how much it's going to cost. It's up to him to manage those costs. And he's the expert at managing those costs, so that's the way you should go. If you don't know what you want, and you know there's going to be changes, well, then cost plus might work in your favor because he's not priced it into the lump sum cost. He's giving you as is, here's my cost plus my markup. You can see everything. So again, this is your choice based on what's going to happen on your product, what you think is going to happen and what you think you are. And there's pros and cons for all things. In general, for an owner, if you're in that position, fixed price lump sum will be better. In general, for the builder, cost plus is probably better. In my yeah, opinion. I... I probably disagree with that slightly um and one of the things that i get is marketing material from i guess software businesses and companies that help manage things and all of the data suggests that cost plus contracts will earn you a lower margin that the data does suggest that fixed price contracts at if you're a building company you're in a much better position with fixed price contract because the margin can be higher. Where that margin comes from is uncertain. You've swapped margin for risk. That's it. That's the transfer, right? Yeah, that's what a builder is, though. A builder is so a head contractor is someone who gets paid a fee to manage risk. You know, that's my broader definition. You know, so fee and risk is kind of like two parts of the same equation. So you're right in what you're saying. You'll definitely get a higher margin if you deliver the project on time within budget. You should because you should have priced in risk into your price. And so you'll have a higher margin. But the outcome of cost plus is is better because you can just do the work and you're good to go. You have way less risk and you're getting a reasonable margin. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess the current environment, you know, broadly speaking, that's what you've told me, Keen, is a conventional view. But the current market's flipped that on its head because one thing that's happened is builders are going broke because they locked in a price and so they're locked into a contract they can't fulfill anymore. And some of these builders thought they were on fat margins and they were loving it until price escalation just slashed it one year, then then they had forward contracts for the next year, took another chunk out of that. And a lot of them have got into trouble my view is that what happens in a fixed price contract is when there's not enough money in the budget, um, when there's not enough margin in the job, costs start getting slashed and the pressure is on the builder to find cheaper solutions and cheaper solutions. And that's okay to a point, but I think the Australian standard is quite a flimsy, funny thing. And, there's a huge band of variability in terms of the quality delivered within that standard. And quality will suffer. The builder will inevitably probably take on some risk because people who are or subcontractors that charge less tend to be higher risk in one way or another. 
And this, so this is my other passion. So it is, is construction businesses. And so what, what you're describing to me is the vicious cycle of bidding and tethering. And so what's happening is every time you get in a project, your margin is getting smaller. Because your margin is getting smaller, you can hire worse people. You can hire worse equipment. You deliver a worse service for the client. You're probably getting a, not the type of client you want in the first place. Um, who's just, you know, that's a larger proportion of their salary. If their income is your margin. And so they feel like it's a big thing that they're doing rather than better clients, let's say. And so you just spiral downwards because you didn't make that much margin on this project and you have to win another project to keep going and then your margin needs to get lower to win that project and it's a spiral down of you delivering worse and worse projects because you don't have the margin to get the people, get the equipment and so the outcome for the client is worse, reputation goes down and it's that virtuous cycle down the way. The question is, how can you win projects with higher margins? And so if winning projects with higher margins will resolve most of those lump sum issues where you've taken on the like it, it risks that you essentially can't handle and, and margins that you can't handle. And so my fix for that is having acquisition channels that are not just bidding and tendering for work in the traditional way. It is creating yourself as an authority in your market, creating a brand around your company that you are the expert and you will charge more money, but you will get a better outcome at the end of the day. And you can do that. You're going to make a higher margin. You're going to be able to have better people on your team. You're going to have better equipment on your team better service at the end of the day and their client's going to get a better outcome. And then you have the, the virtual cycle where it spirals up the way. Yeah, and so we've tested that hypothesis a little bit, the, the broader hypothesis, I guess, of, of cost cost plus versus lump sum. And because we, we had a conundrum because we're a design and build business, but, but Ballast Point is a design and build business. And we were in a conundrum. We had escalating prices and, and the escalations – Year on year, as far as I know, there have been unprecedented. Certainly in my career, unprecedented. I don't know how far you have to go back to see similar price escalation. but And we always had a conundrum that some clients were pushing towards a fixed price contract. Some clients were pushing towards a cost plus or open book contract. And that was a, a foregone conclusion. Our preference was always for an open book solution because we wanted to share the risk and, and I guess not be in a position where we're pushed to cut costs and just to make margin or just to stay ahead of the curve. So we think that was a balanced solution. But what we did, well, what do we do? Because we've got, we've got design clients moving into that we want to build for. They want us to build their house. How do we get to a contract and how do we navigate through which contract and that, that took a bit of thinking, but in the end, the solution was we'll give them the option and we'll give them the budget and we'll disclose our margin. And so we disclosed our margins. The, the our standard margins are, are on our website. There's, there's no secret, but there is an open book. There's a cost plus margin, the, the plus being the margin of 15%. And then in the, for, for, for bigger jobs, I should say, for smaller jobs, it's more, but for bigger jobs, it's it's Fifteen percent's barely acceptable, and we said we can fix this price. We stand by the estimate. We know that we stand by the budget, but we can fix it. But you'll have to pay a premium because we're absorbing the risk of price escalation. So we would add ten or fifteen percent to that, and then just 
open it up and give them the option. And I guess what we found is that out of all our clients, none wanted to pay the premium to fix the contract. But the evidence, I guess the evidence does show that the typical margin on a fixed contract is a lot more. So we're like, we felt that we're broadly, even at 30% fixed price margin, we're broadly in alignment with the industry standard. We're not, we're not an outlier. Most clients prefer to work with us on an open book basis. That's our, all of them, in fact, that proceeded to, to a contract. And, you know, like I've always favored, and I guess because you get, you get a bit older and you don't want the risk. <laughs> you want to share, you know, you're taking on risk anyway. You're taking on, client default risk you're taking on a risk of people injuring themselves on your site you're taking on risk as it stands i'd rather just earn a reliable margin not an exceptional margin but not take price escalation risk so that that's how i've thought about it and i feel like our clients in their decision making have, have supported that when we when we left the choice up to them but maybe our clients were already maybe we already had the right that sort of client base to begin with so maybe it's a very small sample you know yeah um, to be fair so it's hardly something that is significant as a data set but yeah look i was wondering how you would see this point i've always thought so one thing you learn if you ever go to court which unfortunately i had to go to court once but if you ever go to court it was to basically chase a payment that was owing to us. And what you assume is that when you go to court and the judge makes a ruling, the other side is compelled to pay. And so when they didn't pay, I said, well, to my solicitor, well, the court has found in our favour, like 100%, there was no... There was 100% in our favour, no question. And the defaulting client still failed to pay. And I said, but how does this work? How does the system work? And he said, well, the system assumes that people do the right thing. <laughs> and and I feel like in contracts, and I've taken this approach into my contract risk mitigation, no matter what contract you have, you're still relying on people to do the right thing in the end. And whichever contract you have, yes, you'll be in a better position one way or another. But I feel like your focus should be on finding the right people first. And then, of course, implementing a fair contract. But first and foremost, find the right builder. Yeah, 100%. So, well, to go back to what you were originally saying with your clients, it is my view that the appreciation of the honesty and the openness is probably why they were like, yeah, let's, let's go. I don't think the actual differentiation of the two mattered. And definitely, yeah, like you could definitely tweak some things there to, to be more beneficial to both parties. But uh, from a contract's point of view, I mean, ultimately what everybody wants is to sign a contract and then never have to use it, right? But you just need to understand that that's, I mean, that's, uh, it's the same for anything, really. You just don't want to, you just need to know what's going to happen if these things happen. And they don't always happen. 
changes do happen if you can afford to pay for the changes and that they're fair and everything that's absolutely fine that's how hopefully most of these things will will actually work out and we know from our data that if you're getting into a dispute and you this is something you found that it is 100% better to sit down around the table and come to any sort of agreement and get it solved there because by taking it further Nobody wins except for, you know, the, the professional that will take you to court and do all of that sort of stuff, which is helpful if you're in that situation. But you are going, it's a race to see who loses the least amount of money at this stage. And so there's a couple of things that are being spent. And again, I've been in this situation as well. Things that are being spent is money and your attention as a business owner. And so the attention being spent on this thing and the, and the mental energy is worth money because you're it's you're not progressing your business in other ways. And you, if you've been in this situation, even though you think, oh, I, I could handle that, it, it is, it's very draining. And so the price of just coming to an agreement with that person, maybe that you don't even like. Maybe it's a, you've offered them, okay, look, just let's just get this done and I'll knock X amount off it. And you're not even happy. It's still better then the loss of attention and the loss of finances and that you're going to have to spend to recoup this money. And you, you even saw you did went the whole, the whole hog and you didn't even get the money at the end of the day. So I don't know. Sorry, I'm assuming you didn't, but you got to the stage where they didn't even pay even the, even though the court ordered this. Uh, I know. We, we, you had to, you know, that's the funny thing about winning a court case. It's like, well, what, how do we get the money? Well, you go back to court <laughs> to compel them to pay. So I, I was like, oh. That's an awkward system, but anyway, so yes, we were paid. It was worthwhile, and you're absolutely right, the, the mental energy, but I tell you what, the lesson you learn is incredible because there's nothing like getting your email read out in court. <laughs> like For to, sure, yeah. To give you an understanding of how important it is to act in a prudent way act in an honest way, put things in writing that are critical. So luckily that was the case in our experience. But, yeah, I, I guess something you maybe you don't want to do, but, yeah, I, I guess that for me years of people telling you about contracts and there's nothing like the experience of really testing it, you really learn on a different level. And then sure. you're, you're in a, maybe you're in a position to offer advice in a different way than you were before. So, you know, I, you know, I'll put it down to uh, experience. I guess it was draining, but it was also, I think of it as a growth period. So I, I have no regrets. I regret um, maybe contracting with that particular client, but look, <laughs> that's, uh, that's something you can't predict always. So towards the end of each episode, we try and have free key takeaways if there's two there's two if there's seven there's seven whatever but three which we're aiming for free key takeaways i guess uh, i'll let you maybe start with your free key takeaways if, if i'm not putting you in a spot too much yeah, you go. okay so if you're building a home or you're investing in a home and you have like a, a construction project essentially i think there's three key things that you need to look for one that will solve most of your issues is if you have the scope of work, the the drawings and everything clearly defined, you know exactly what you want before you start 
and you're you're confident as much as possible you're not going to make any changes that's going to save you 90 95 percent of the problems and um, in the contracts themselves you want to look you want to understand what needs to happen with with change orders variations and extensions of time they're the key because they're the things that are going to happen probably more statistically that you're going to there's going to be changes there's going to be delays what happens understand what happens if you're not happy with them try and get them changed and the last one is termination so if it all goes pear-shaped how do what's your escape hatch how do you get out read the termination clause in the contract if you're not happy with if you want to be able to get out and you need a way to get out of the contract make sure you can get out they're the three things that i would focus on and i would focus on um you know keep contracts important I, my focus is standard contract use a standard contract one thing that i found is if you send a standard contract to a solicitor, which my, a lot of clients have in the past, to just look over, they tend to justify their existence somehow by changing. They always feel like they should have an opinion. So don't change the standard contract is is the first one. Find a quality architect that does good quality drawings because, you know, drawings to the nth degree that are of a poor standard are still going to get you into trouble. And equal share on contract but but focus on getting the right people there because you don't want to get into a contractual dispute i think or a termination terminations will be curly and painful so do your homework and choose the very best people you can so that they're my free i hope they compliment yours in the not yeah i think so i think so no no for sure it's all everyone wanting to get the job done at the end of the day so keen Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. So Keen's company's quantum contract solutions, they're over in Perth, but they do contract solutions throughout the world. And we'll endeavor to put links together and we're, you know, we're still working on how to do all of that, but we'll make sure that if people listening to our podcast want to get in touch with you for advice, then, then they'll be able to do that. So thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. okay so look just if if people are looking for free help we've got a youtube channel called construction secrets on there there's a playlist and there's like 16 videos walking you through exactly what you need to negotiate in contracts so check that out um, and hopefully that helps Um, it's probably the best way to get yourself upskilled in that area thank you thanks again you've been very generous with your time and you've been brilliant thank you for tuning in to buildopedia If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating to help other listeners like you find our podcast. For more information, please check out the show notes and connect with us on social media. We would love to hear from you.